The following is a conversation with Lord Martin Rees, Emeritus Professor of Cosmology and Astrophysics at Cambridge University and co-founder of the Center for the Study of Existential Risk. And now a quick few second mention of each sponsor. Check them out in the description. It's the best way to support this podcast. We got Lambda for deep learning, Inside Tracker for longevity, Indeed for hiring, ExpressVPN for privacy, and Onnit for supplements. Choose wisely, my friends. And now on to the full ad reads. As always, no ads in the middle. I try to make this interesting, but if you skip them, please still check out our sponsors. I enjoy their stuff. Maybe you will too. This show is brought to you by Lambda. Computers, workstations, laptops, servers, cloud compute, all for deep learning. I love Lambda. I won't stop sharing how much I love these systems. They just make it super simple for you to do deep learning. They configure everything for you. I think they have Windows systems, but if you know what's good for you, you're gonna go Linux. Everything works, PyTorch, TensorFlow, everything is set up, the full stack, it just works. And it's super powerful machines. So the laptop obviously is really impressive because it can be on the go. I'm going to be using it for more mobile robotics, both training, it's really important to say, it's powerful enough to do training. But in general, it's just an incredible company that does both cloud and what's the opposite of cloud, offline computing systems, plug and play access to very powerful computation, specialized for machine learning. So you got all the GPUs you can possibly use. There you go, that's poetry. So it's good both for individual researchers and huge companies. What else can I say? You can check them out at lambdalabs.com slash lex. I just think it's great to support what they're doing for the machine learning community, making it easy, what they're doing for companies that are interested in doing machine learning, just making it easy, making it classy and sexy. Love what they're doing. Glad there's people like that out there. This show is also brought to you by Inside Tracker, a service I use to track biological data. They have a bunch of plans, most of which include a blood test that gives you a lot of information they can use to make decisions about your health. They have algorithms, machine learning algorithms that analyze that data. That includes your blood data, DNA data, and fitness tracker data that comes from your body, right? This is very specific to your body and gives you a clear picture of what you need to do. This is obviously what should be done in the 21st century. Combined with my conversation with uh, Demis Hassabis from DeepMind about the future of sort of science, of biological applications of machine learning, medical applications of machine learning. It's so, so, so exciting. And being able to make these large scale machine learning systems that give you advice based on your specific individual data, that's really, really exciting. Just even outside of it being beneficial to your life, I think you should also consider supporting them for this big mission. That's gonna help a lot of people. So go to insidetracker.com slash Lex, and for a limited time, you get special savings for being a listener. This show is also brought to you by Indeed, a hiring website. I've used them as part of many hiring efforts I've done for the teams I've led, especially engineering teams, but all kinds of teams. They have tools like Indeed Instant Match, giving you quality candidates with resumes that indeed fit your job description immediately. I'm actually currently looking for translators and overdubbers to help me with um, some of the projects I'm doing here in Ukrainian and Russian. I speak the languages, but I wanna have like a strong team that brings out the best from these people. And it's all a fascinating new challenge and I wanna hire the best people in the world to help me. I want to connect the world and <laughs> Language is a barrier that separates us. and So I'm looking to hire people to help me and uh, I'll probably tweet about it, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, Indeed is a tool I'll definitely use to help me find great folks. 
for only a limited time. Indeed has a special offer for the listeners of this podcast. Check it out at indeed.com slash Lex. This show is also brought to you by ExpressVPN. You should know, friends, that the ISPs, the internet service providers, can still track you even if you use basic protection like incognito mode on Chrome. They can still get your data. As I travel, whether it's watching shows on uh, Netflix or just protecting your privacy on the internet from all the ISPs and everybody who wants to collect your data, or just in general as you travel to different parts of the world and you want to read different kinds of news. I mean, VPN is essential. And my favorite VPN has always been, for many, many years, ExpressVPN with a big sexy button that just works super fast, works on any device, any operating system, at least any that I know of, including Linux, my favorite operating system. You can go check them out at expressvpn.com slash LexPod for an extra three months free. I've been using it for many years. Why don't you join me, friend, in this journey that's protected, at least in part, with a good VPN. This episode is also brought to you by Onnit, a nutrition supplement and fitness company. They make AlphaBrain. Perhaps you've heard of it. I don't take it every day, but I do take it often when I have uh, an especially serious kind of difficult deep work session when I'm preparing for certain difficult conversations. I mean, this is particularly for engineering. If I'm unsure how I'm gonna solve the different design parts, uh, especially early on in the design stage of the project. But I also think of conversations as a kind of design. And so in trying to sort of visualize the the big picture of a conversation and then zooming into very specific parts of a conversation, I have to really think hard. And and for that, Alpha Brain can be a big boost. So I'll take it in those cases. It helps clear the mind, helps maintain focus, sleep, and and I gotta say power naps, of course, are really essential. But on top of that, something like Alpha Brain really helps. You can check them out at lexfriedman.com slash onit to get a special discount. This is the Lex Friedman Podcast. To support it, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, dear friends, here's Martin Reese. In your 2020 Scientific American article, you write that, quote, today we know that the universe is far bigger and stranger than anyone suspected. So what do you think are the strangest, maybe the most beautiful, or maybe even the most terrifying things lurking out there in the cosmos? Well, of course, we're still groping for any detailed understanding of the remote parts of the universe. But of course, what we've learned in the last few decades is really two things. First, we've understood that the universe had an origin about 13.8 billion years ago in a so-called Big Bang, a hot, dense state, whose very beginnings are still shrouded in mystery. And also, we've learned more about the extreme things in it, uh, black holes, neutron stars, explosions of various kinds. And one of the most potentially exciting discoveries in the last 20 years, mainly in the last 10, has been the realization that most of the stars in the sky are orbited by retinues of planets, just as the sun is orbited by the Earth and the other familiar planets. And this, of course, makes the night sky far more interesting. What you see up there aren't just points of light, but they're 
planetary systems, and that raises the question, could there be life out there? And so that uh, is an exciting problem for the 21st century. So when you see all those lights out there, you immediately imagine all the planetary worlds that are around them, and they potentially have all kinds of different lives living organisms, life forms, or well, different that, histories. Well, that we don't know at all. We know that these planets are there. We know that they have masses and um, orbits rather like the planets of our solar system, but we don't know at all if there's any life on any of them. I mean, it's entirely logically possible that life is unique to this Earth, doesn't exist anywhere. On the other hand, uh, it could be that the origin of life is something which happens routinely given conditions like the young Earth, in which case there could be literally billions of places in our galaxy where some sort of biosphere has evolved and uh, settling um, where the truth lies between those two extremes is a challenge for the coming decades. So certainly we're either lucky to be here or very, very, very lucky to be here. I guess and that's, that's so, yes. That's the difference. Uh, where do you fall your own estimate, your own guess on this question. Are we alone in the universe, do you think? I think it would be foolish to give any firm estimate because we just don't know. And that's just an example of how uh, we are depending on greater observations. And also, incidentally, in the case of life, we've got to take account of the fact that, uh, as I always say to my scientific colleagues, biology is a much harder subject than physics. And most of the... Um, universe as we know about it could be understood by physics but uh, we've got to remember that even the smallest living organism an insect is far more complicated with layer on layer of complexity uh, than uh, uh, the m most complicated star or galaxy you know that's the funny thing of, about physics and biology the dream of physicists in the 20th century and, and maybe this century is to discover th the theory of everything and there's a sense by that once you discover that theory, you will understand everything. If we unlock the mysteries of how the universe works, would you be able to understand how life emerges from that fabric of the universe that we understand? I think the phrase theory of everything is very misleading because it's used to describe a theory which unifies the um, three laws of microphysics electricity, magnetism, and weak interaction with gravity. So it's an important step forward for particle physicists. But the lack of such a theory doesn't hold up any other scientists. Anyone doing biology or most of physics is not held up at all through not understanding subnuclear physics. They're held up because they're dealing with things that are very complicated. Mm -hmm. And that's especially true of anything biological. So what's holding up biologists is not a lack of a so-called theory of everything. Uh, it's the inability to understand things which are very complicated. What do you think we'll understand first? How the universe works or how the human body works? Deeply, like from a fundamental deep level. Well, I think, um, perhaps we can come back to it later, that there are only limited prospects of ever being able to understand with unaided human brains the most fundamental theories linking together all the forces of nature. I think that may be a limitation of the human brains. Um, but I also uh, think that um, we can, perhaps aided by computer simulations, um, understand a bit more of the complexity of nature. 
but uh, even understanding a simple organism from the atom up is very, very difficult. And I think extreme reductionists have a very misleading perception. They tend to think that, uh, um, in a sense, we are all solutions to Schrodinger's equation, etc. Um, but that isn't the way we'll ever understand anything. Uh, it may be true that we are reductionists in the sense that we believe that that's the case. We don't believe in any special life force in living things. But nonetheless, no one thinks that we can understand a living thing by solving Schrodinger's equation. To take an example which isn't as complicated, lots of people study the flow of fluids like water, why waves break, why flows go turbulent, things like that. This is a serious branch of applied mathematics and engineering. And in doing this, you have concepts of uh, viscosity, turbulence, and things like that. Now, you can understand quite a lot about how water behaves and how waves break in terms of those concepts. But the fact that any breaking wave is a solution of Schrodinger's equation for tens of 30 particles, even if you could solve that, which you clearly can't, would not give you any insight. So the important thing is that every science has its own irreducible concepts in which you get the best explanation. Uh, so it may be in chemistry, it's things like valence, um, in biology, the concepts in cell biology, um, and in uh, ecology, there are concepts like imprinting, etc. And in psychology, there are other concepts. So in a sense, the sciences are like a tall building where you have basic physics, the most fundamental, then the rest of physics, then chemistry, then cell biology, etc., all the way up to the, uh, I guess, economists in the penthouse and all that. Um, <laughs> and we have that. Um, and that's true in a sense, but it's not true that it's like a building in that it's made unstable by an unstable base. Because if you're a chemist, biologist, or an economist, you're facing challenging problems, but they're not made any worse by uncertainty about subnuclear physics. And at every level, just because you understand the rules of the game or have a, some yep. understanding of the rules of the game doesn't uh, mean you know what kind of beautiful things that game creates. Right. So uh, if you're interested in um, birds and how they fly, uh, then things like uh, um, imprinting the baby on the mother and all that and uh, things like that are what you need to understand. Um, you couldn't even in principle yeah. solve this vertical equation, how an albatross wanders for thousands of miles of the Southern Ocean and comes back and then coughs up food for its young. Uh, that, that's something we can understand in a sense and uh, predict the behavior, but it's not because we can solve it on the atomic scale. You mentioned that there might be some fundamental limitation to the human brain. Yes. That limits our ability to understand some aspect of how the universe works. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. That's sad, actually. If, if, if to the degree it's true, it's sad. So what do you mean by that? I would simply say that just as um, a monkey can't understand quantum theory or even Newtonian physics, um, there's no particular reason why the human brain should have evolved to be well-matched to understanding the deepest aspects of reality. And I suspect that there uh, may be aspects that we are not even aware of and couldn't really fully comprehend. Um, but as an intermediate step towards that, 
one thing which I think is a very interesting possibility is the extent to which AI can help us. I mean, I think uh, if you take the example of uh, so-called theories of everything, one of which is string theory, um, string theory involves very complicated geometry and structures in 10 dimensions. And it's certainly, in my view, on the cards that the physics of 10 dimensions, the very complicated geometry, um, may be too hard for a human being to work through, but could be worked through by an AI um, with the advantage of the huge processing power, which enables them to learn world championship chess within a few hours just by watching games. So there's every reason to expect that these um, machines could help us to solve these problems. And of course, if that's the way we came to understand whether the string theory was right, um, it should be in a sense frustrating because you wouldn't get the sort of aha insight, which is the greatest satisfaction from doing science. But on the other hand, if um, a machine churns away a 10-dimensional geometry, figuring out all the possible uh, uh, origamis wound up in extra dimensions, if it comes out at the end, spews out the correct mass of the electron, the fact that there are three kinds of neutrinos, something like that, you would know that there was some truth in the theory. And so we may have a theory which we come to trust because it does predict things that we can observe and check, but we may never really understand the full workings of it to the extent that we do more or less understand um, how um, most phenomena can be explained in a fundamental way. Of course, in the case of quantum theory, Many people would say, understandably, there's still some mystery if you don't quite understand why it works. But there could be deeper mysteries when we get to these unified theories, where there's a big gap between um, uh, what a computer can print out for us at the end and what we can actually grasp and think through in our heads. Yeah, it's interesting that the idea that there could be things a computer could tell us that is true. And maybe you can even help us understand why it's true a little bit, yep. but ultimately it's still a long journey to really deeply understand the whys of it. Uh, yes, and that's an limitation of our brain. We can, we can try to sneak up to it <laughs> in different ways, given the limitations of our brain. Have you, I've gotten a chance to spend the day at DeepMind, talk to Demis Hassabis. His big dream is to apply AI to the questions of science, certainly to the questions of physics. Have you gotten a chance to interact it, with them? Well, I know him quite well. I've, uh, he's one of my heroes, certainly. And, uh, <laughs> and I remember- I'm sure he would say the uh, same. And, and I remember the, the first time I met him, he said that uh, he was like me, he wanted to understand the universe, but he thought <laughs> the best thing to do was to try and develop AI. And then with the help of AI, he'd stand more chance of understanding the universe. Yeah. And I think he's, he's right about that. So, uh, And of course, uh, um, although we're familiar with uh, the way his uh, computers play Go and uh, chess, um, uh, he's already made contributions to science through uh, uh, understanding protein folding better than the best human chemists. And so already he's on the path to showing ways in which computers have the power to learn and do things by having ability to analyze enormous samples in a short time uh, to do better th than humans. And so um, I think he would resonate with what I've just said, that it may be that uh, in these other fundamental questions, the computers will play a crucial role. Yeah, and they're also doing uh, quantum mechanical simulation of electrons. They're doing yeah. uh, control of uh, 
high temperature plasmas, fusion reactors. Yes, that's a new thing, which is very interesting. They can suppress the instabilities in these tokamaks um, better than any other way. Yeah, and it's just the march of progress by AIs and science mm-hmm. is is making uh, big strides. Do you think an AI system will win a Nobel Prize in this century? What do you think? (laughs) And does Um, that make you sad? If I can digress and put in a plug for my next book, it has a chapter saying why Nobel Prizes do more harm than good. Yes. Uh, so uh, on a quite separate subject, I, I think uh, Nobel Prizes do a great deal of damage to the perception of the way science is done. Of course, if you ask who or what deserves the credit for any scientific discovery, it may be often someone who has an idea, a team of people who work a big experiment, etc. Yes. Um, and of course, uh, it's the quality of the equipment which is um, crucial. And certainly in the subjects I do in astronomy, um, the ad- huge advances we've had uh, come not from us being more intelligent than Aristotle was, but through us having far, far better uh, data um, from powerful telescopes on the ground and in space. And also, incidentally, uh, we've benefited hugely in astronomy uh, from um, uh, computer simulations, because um, if you are uh, a, a subatomic physicist, then, of course, you crash together the particles in a big accelerator like the one at CERN and see what happens. But um, I can't crash together two galaxies or two stars and see what happens. But in the virtual world of a computer, one can do simulations like that. And the power of computers is such that these simulations uh, can um, yield um, a phenomena and insights which we wouldn't have guessed beforehand. And the way we can feel we're making progress in trying to understand some of these phenomena, why galaxies have the size and shape they do and all that is because we can do simulations um, tweaking different initial conditions and seeing which gives the best fit to what we actually observe. And so that's a way in which we've made progress in using uh, computers. And incidentally, uh, we also now need them to analyze data because one thinks of astronomy as being traditionally a rather data-poor subjects. But the um, European satellite called Gaia has just put online the um, speeds and colors and properties of nearly 2 billion stars in the Milky Way, <laughs> and which we do fantastic analyses of. And that, of course, could not be done at all without just the number crunching capacities of computers. And the, the new methods of machine learning actually love raw data, the kind that astronomy provides, organized, structured, raw data. Yeah, well, indeed, because the reason they really have a benefit over us is that they can learn and think so much faster. That's how they can learn to play chess and go. That's how they can learn to diagnose lung cancer better than a radiologist, because they can look at 100,000 scans in a a few days, whereas uh, no human radiologist sees that many in a lifetime. Well... There's still a magic to the human intelligence, to the intuition, to the common sense reasoning. Uh, well, we hope so. <laughs> for now. Well, what, what is the new book that you mentioned? The book I mentioned is called uh, um, If Science is to Save Us. It's coming out in September. Um, and it's on the, um, well, the, the, the big challenges of science, um, you know, um, climate, dealing with uh, biosafety and dealing with cyber safety. And also it's got chapters on the um, uh, way science is organized 
know, universities yeah. and academies, etc., institutions, and and the the ethics of science and um, uh, and, and, and perhaps the, the limits of and, and and the limits. Yes, yeah. Well, let me actually just stroll around the the beautiful and the strange of the universe. Uh, over twenty years ago, you hypothesized that we would solve the mystery of dark matter by now. Uh, so unfortunately, we didn't no, that's quite right. yet. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, first, what is dark matter, and why has it been so tough to figure out? Well, I mean, we, we learned that galaxies and other large-scale structures, which are moving around but uh, um, prevented from flying apart by, by gravity, um, would be flying apart if they only contain the stuff we see, mm -hmm. if everything in them was shining. And to understand how galaxies formed and why they do remain confined the same size, uh, one has to infer that there's about five times as much stuff producing gravitational forces than the total amount of stuff in the gas and stars that we see. And that stuff is called dark matter. Um, that's sort of its leading name. It's not dark, it's just transparent, etc. Um, and the uh, most likely interpretation is that it's a swarm of uh, microscopic particles which have no electric charge and the very small cross-sections are hitting each other and hitting anything else. So they swarm around and we, we can detect their collective effects. And when we do computer simulations of how galaxies form and evolve and how they emerge from the Big Bang, then uh, we get a nice consistent picture if we put in five times as much mass in the form of these mysterious dark particles. And for instance, it works better if we think they're non-interacting particles than if we think they're a gas, which would have shock waves and things. So we know something about the properties of these, but we don't know what they are. And um, the disappointment compared to my guess 20 years ago um, is that particles answering this description have not yet been found. It was thought that the big accelerator, the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, which is the world's biggest, might have found a new class of particles, which would have been the obvious candidates. And it hasn't. And uh, um, some people say, well, dark matter can't be there, etc. But what I would argue is that there's a huge amount of parameter space that hasn't been explored um, there are other kinds of particles called axions, which behave slightly differently, which are a good candidate. Um, and um, there's a factor of uh, 10 powers of 10 between the heaviest particles that could be created by the Large Hadron Collider and the heaviest particles, which on theoretical grounds could exist mm -hmm. without turning into black holes. So there's a huge amount of uh, possible particles which could be out there as remnants of the Big Bang. Um, but which we wouldn't be able to detect so easily. So um, the fact that we've got new constraints on what the dark matter could be doesn't diminish my belief that it's there in the form of particles because we've only explored a small fraction of parameter space. So there's this search. You're <laughs> literally, uh, pun unintended, are searching in the dark here in this giant parameter space of possible particles you're searching for. I mean, yes. there could be all kinds of particles. There could not. be, and there's some which may be very, very hard to detect, but I think we can hope for um, some new theoretical ideas because um, <clears throat> one point which perhaps you'd like to discuss more is about the uh, very early stage of the Big Bang. Um, and uh, the situation now is that we have a 
outline picture for how the universe has evolved um, from the time when it was expanding in just a nanosecond right up to the present. And we could do that because after nanosecond, the physics of the material is in the same range that we can test in the lab. After a nanosecond, the particles move around like those in the Large Hadron Collider. If you wait for one second, they're rather like in the centers of the hottest stars, and nuclear reactions produce hydrogen, helium, etc., which fit the data. So we can, with confidence, extrapolate back to when the universe was a nanosecond old. Indeed, I think we can do it with as much confidence as anything a geologist tells you about the early history of the Earth. And that's huge progress in the last 50 years. But any progress puts in sharper focus uh, new mysteries. And of course, the new mysteries in this context are why is the universe expanding the way it is? Why does it contain this mixture of atoms and dark matter and radiation? And why does it have uh, um, the properties which allow galaxies to form, being fairly smooth but not completely smooth? And the answer to those questions are generally believed to lie in a much, much earlier stage of the universe when conditions were much more extreme and therefore far beyond the stage where we had the foothold in experiments, very theoretical. And so um, we don't have a, a convincing theory. We just have ideas until we have something like string theory or some other clues to the ultra-early universe. Uh, that's going to remain speculative. So um, there's a big gap. And to say how big the gap is, um, if we take the observable universe uh, to a bit more than 10 billion light years, um, then when the universe was a nanosecond old, that would have been squeezed down to the size of our solar system or compressed into that, that volume. But the times we're talking about when the key properties of the universe were first imprinted were times when that entire universe was squeezed down to the size of a tennis ball or baseball, if you prefer, um, and it emerged from something microscopic. So it's a huge extrapolation. And it's not surprising that since it's so far from our experimental range of detectability, um, we are still groping for ideas. But you think first theory will reach into that place and then experiment will perhaps one day catch up? Well, I Maybe think simulation. It, it, in a sense it's a combination. I think uh, what, what we hope for is that um, uh, there'll be a theory which applies to the early universe, but which also has consequences which we can test in our present-day universe, um, uh, like um, discovering why neutrinos exist or things like that. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing which, as I mentioned, we may perhaps need a bit of AI to help us to calculate. But, yeah. but I think um, the, the hope would be that uh, we will have a theory which applies under the very, very extreme early stages of the universe, but which gains credibility and gains confidence because it also manages to account for otherwise unexplained features of um, uh, the low-energy world and what people call a standard model of particle physics, where there are lots of undetermined numbers. So it may help with that. So we're dancing between physics and philosophy a little bit, but what do you think, what do you think happened before the Big Bang? So this seems, this feels like something that's out of the reach of science. It's out of the reach of present science because science develops and as the front is advanced, 
then new problems come into focus that couldn't even have been postulated before. I mean, if I think of my own career, when I was a student, the evidence for the Big Bang was pretty weak, whereas now it's extremely strong. Um, but we are now thinking about the reason why the universe is the way it is and all that. Um, so uh, I, I would put all these things we've just mentioned in the category of speculative science. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I don't see a bifurcation between that and philosophy. Um, but of course, to answer your question, um, if we do want to understand the very early universe, then we've got to realize that uh, it may involve even more counterintuitive concepts than quantum theory does, because it's a condition even further away from everyday world than quantum theory is. And remember, our lives, our brains evolved um, and haven't changed much since our ancestors roamed the African savannah and looked yeah. at the everyday world. Um, and uh, it's rather amazing that we've been able to make some sense of the quantum micro world yes. and of the cosmos. But uh, uh, there may be some things which are beyond us. And certainly, as we implied, there are things that we don't yet understand at all. And uh, of course, one concept we might have to jettison is the idea of three dimensions of space and time just ticking away. There are lots of ideas. I mean, I think Stephen Hawking had an idea that talking about what's what happened before the Big Bang, it's like asking what happens if you go north from the North Pole. You know, it, it somehow closes off. That's just one idea. Mm -hmm. um, I don't like that idea, but that's a possible one. Um, and, uh, uh, and so we just don't know um, what happened at the very beginning of the Big Bang, were there many Big Bangs rather than one, etc. Um, and uh, those are issues which um, we may be able to get some uh, uh, foothold on from some new theory, um, but even then, um, we won't be able to directly test the, th the theories. But I think um, it's a heresy to think you have to be able to test every prediction of a theory. Let me give you another, another example. Um, we take seriously what Einstein's theory says about the inside of black holes, even though we can't observe them, because that theory has been vindicated in many other places, in cosmology and black holes, gravitational waves, and all those things. Um, likewise, if we had a, a theory which um, explains some things about the early history of our Big Bang and the present universe, then we would take seriously the inference if it predicted many Big Bangs, not one, even though we can't predict the other ones. So the example is that we can uh, take seriously a prediction if it's the consequence of a theory that we believe on other grounds. We don't need to be able to uh, detect another Big Bang in order to take it seriously. It may not be a proof, but it's a good indication that uh, this is the direction where the truth lies. Yeah, if the theory has gained confidence in other ways. Yes. Where do you sense? Do you think there's other universes besides our own? Uh, there are sort of well-defined theories which make assumptions about the physics at the relevant time. And this time, incidentally, is 10 to the power minus 36 seconds um, <laughs> yeah. or earlier than that. So yeah. this tiny sliver of time. And um, there are some theories, a uh, famous one due to Andre Linde, um, the Russian cosmologist now at Stanford, called eternal inflation, um, which did predict um, an eternal production of new Big Bangs, as it were. And uh, 
uh, that's based on specific assumptions about the physics. But those assumptions, of course, are just hypotheses which aren't vindicated. But there are other theories which only predict one Big Bang. So I think uh, we should be open-minded and not dogmatic about these these options until we do understand the relevant physics. But uh, there are these different scenarios of very different ideas about, about this. But I think all of them have the feature that physical reality is a lot more extensive than what we can see through our telescope. I think even the most conservative astronomers would say that because uh, uh, we can see out with our telescopes to a sort of horizon, which is about, uh, depending on how you measure it, it's about maybe 15 billion light years away or something like that. But that horizon of our observations is no more physical reality than the horizon around you if you're in the ocean. Um, and look at looking out at, at, at your horizon. There's no th- reason to think that the ocean ends just beyond your horizon. And likewise, there's no reason to think that the aftermath of our Big Bang um, ends just at the boundary of what we can see. Indeed, there are quite strong arguments um, that it probably goes on about 100 times further. And it may even go on so much further that uh, all combinatorials are replicated and uh, there's another set of people like us sitting in a, in a room like this. Every possible uh, combination of... Yeah, that, that could oh, happen. Uh, well, that's not logically impossible. Um, but uh, but I think many people would accept that it does go on um, and uh, contain um, probably a million times as much stuff as what we can see within a horizon. The reason for that, incidentally, is that if we look as far as we can in one direction and in the opposite direction, then the conditions don't differ by more than one part in 100,000. So that means that if we're part of some finite structure, the gradient across the part we can see is very small. Yeah. And so that suggests that it probably does go on a lot further. And uh, the best estimates say it must go on at least 20 times further. Is that exciting or terrifying to you? Just the spans of it all, the wide, everything that lies beyond the horizon it, that that example doesn't even hold for Earth, so it goes way, way farther. And on top of that, just to take your metaphor further with the on the ocean, yeah. While we're on top of this ocean, not only can we not see beyond the horizon, we also don't know much about the depth of the ocean. That's right. Mm-hmm. Nor the actual mechanism of observation that's in our head. Yes. <laughs> no, I think the rules and houses is all those points you make. Yes. Yes. But uh, but I think. Um, uh, <laughs> even even the solar system is pretty vast by human standards. And so uh, I don't think the perception of this utterly vast cosmos um, need have any deeper impact on us than just realizing that we are very small on the scale of the external world. Yeah. It's humbling, though. It's it's humbling in uh, depending where your ego is. It's humbling and well, if, if you start up very unhumble indeed, it may make a difference. But for most of us, I don't think it makes much much difference. And uh, uh, well, there's a more general question, of course, about uh, um, whether um, the human race, as such, is something which is uh, uh, very special, or if, on the other hand, um, it's just one of many such species elsewhere in the universe or indeed existing at different times in our universe it it, to me it feels uh almost obvious that the universe should be full of alien life 
perhaps dead alien civilizations, but just the mm. the vastness of space. And yes. it just feels wrong to think of Earth as somehow special. It sure as heck doesn't look that special. When you, the more we learn, the less special it seems. Well, I mean, I don't agree with that as far as, as life is concerned, because uh, remember that we don't understand how life began here on Earth. Yes. Uh, we don't understand, although we know that we're in evolution of simple life to complex life, we don't understand uh, what caused a transition between complex chemistry and the first um, replicating, metabolizing entity we call alive. Yes. That's a mystery. Um, and... Uh, uh, serious physicists and, and chemists are now thinking about it, but we don't, we don't know. So we therefore can't say, was it a rare fluke? Yeah. Which would not have happened anywhere else? Or was it something which uh, involves a process that would have happened in any other planet where conditions were like they were on the young Earth? Um, so we, we can't say that now. Um, I, I think well, many of us would indeed bet that probably some kind of life exists elsewhere. But even if um, you accept that, then um, there are many contingencies going from simple life to um, uh, present-day life. And, and some biologists like Stephen Jay Gould uh, thought that if you reran evolution, you'd end up with something quite different, and maybe not with an intelligent species. So the uh, contingencies in evolution um, may militate against the emergence of intelligence even if life gets started in lots of places. So, so I think these are still completely open questions. And that's why it's such an exciting time now that we are starting to be able to address these. I mean, I mentioned the, uh, uh, the fact that the origin of life is a question that we may be able to understand, um, and serious people are working on it. It's usually put in the sort of too difficult box. Everyone knew it was important, but they didn't know how to tackle it or what experiments to do. But it's not like that now. And... Um, that's partly because of cleverer experiments, but I think most importantly because um, we are aware that we can look for life in other places, other places in our solar system, and of course on the exoplanets around other stars. And uh, within 10 or 20 years, I think two things could happen, which would be really, really important. We might, with the next big telescope, be able to image some of the Earth-like planets around other stars. Image, like it, get a picture. Well, well I, actually, let me caveat that. It takes 50 years to get a resolved image, but, <laughs> but, but, but to actually detect the light. Because now, of course, these exoplanets are detected by their effect on the parent star. They either cause their parent star to dim slightly when they transit across in front of it, and so we see the dips, or uh, their gravitational pull makes the star wobble a bit. So, so most of the, the 5,000 plus planets that have been found around other stars, they've been found indirectly by their effect Yes, in one of those two ways on the parent star. You could still star. do a pretty good job of estimating size, yeah. all those kinds of size things. And the size and the mass, you can estimate. Um, but but, uh, um, but, but det detecting the, the actual light from one of these exoplanets hasn't really been done yet, except in one or two very... Very, very bright big planets. So maybe um, like James Webb Telescope would be. Well, James Webb may do this, but even better will be um, the European ground-based telescope called unimaginatively the Extremely Large Telescope, which has a 39-meter <laughs> diameter mirror. 39 meters, uh, yeah. mosaic of 800 sheets of glass, and that will collect enough light from one of these exoplanets 
around a nearby star um, to be able to um, separate out its light from that of the star, which is a millions of times brighter, and get the spectrum of the planet mm-hmm. and see if it's got uh, oxygen or chlorophyll and things in it. Uh, so that, that, that will come. Um, J- James Webb may, may make some, some steps there. Um, but I think we can look forward to learning qu- quite a bit um, in the next 20 years because I like to say, um, supposing that were aliens looking at the solar system, then they'd see the sun as an ordinary star, they'd see the Earth as in Carl Sagan's nice phrase, a pale blue dot, lying very close in the sky to its star, our sun, and much, much, much fainter. But if they could observe that dot, they could learn quite a bit. They could perhaps get the spectrum of the light and find the atmosphere. They'd find the shade of blue was slightly different, depending on whether the Pacific Ocean or the landmass of Asia was facing them, so they could infer the length of the day and the two oceans and continents and maybe something about the seasons and the climate. And uh, that's the kind of calculation calculation and uh, inference we might be able to draw within the next 10 or 20 years about other exoplanets and, um, uh, and evidence of some sort of biosphere on one of them would, of course, be crucial, and it would rule out the uh, still logical possibility that life is unique. But there's another way in which this may happen in the next 20 years. People think there could be something swimming under the ice of uh, Europa and Enceladus and probes are being sent to maybe not quite go under the ice but detect the spray coming coming out to see if there's evidence for organics in that. And if we found any evidence for an origin of life that had happened in either of those places, that would immediately be important because if life has originated twice independently in one planetary system, the solar system, that would tell us straight away it wasn't a rare accident and must have happened billions of times in the galaxy. At the moment, we can't rule out it being unique. And incidentally, if we found life on Mars, then that would still be ambiguous because uh, um, people have realized that this early life could have got from Mars to Earth or vice versa on yeah. meteorites. So um, if you found life on Mars, then some skeptics could still say if it's a single origin. Um, but I think... But Europa is far enough. That's far enough away. Statistically yeah, yeah. because... Yes, so, so, so that's why that would be especially... So it's always the skeptics that yeah. ruin a good party. But, <laughs> <laughs> but we but need the, them, of course. We need them at the party. We need yeah. some skeptics yeah, yeah. at the party. Yeah. Um, but the, boy, would that be so exciting to find life <laughs> mm-hmm. on one of the moons. Because yeah, yeah. it but means that life is That would just be any kind of vegetation or life. Um, the question of the um, aliens of science fiction is a different matter. Intelligent aliens. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah but if, if you have a good indication that there's life elsewhere in the solar system, that means life is everywhere. Yep. And that, yep. that's, that, that, yeah. I don't know if that's terrifying or what that is, because if life is everywhere, why is intelligent life not everywhere? Why, I mean, you've talked about that most likely alien civilizations, if they are out there, they would likely be far ahead of us. The ones that would actually communicate with us. Yes. And that, um, again, one of those things that is both exciting and terrifying. You, you've mentioned that they're likely not to be of biological nature. Well, I think that that's important. Of course, again, it's a speculation, but uh, uh, in speculating about 
um, intelligent life. And I, I take the search seriously. In fact, I chair the uh, committee that the um, Russian-American investor Yuri Milner supports looking for um, intelligent life. He's putting $10 million a year into uh, better equipment and getting time on telescopes to do this. And so I think it's worthwhile, even though I I don't hold my breath for success. It's, it's very exciting. But, but that does lead me to wonder what might be detected. And um, uh, I think, well, we don't know. We've got to be open minds about anything. We've no idea what it will <laughs> be. And so any anomalous objects or even some strange shiny objects in the solar system or anything we've got to keep our eyes open for. But uh, I think um, if we ask what about a um, planet like the Earth where evolution had taken more of the same track, mm -hmm. then as you say, it wouldn't be synchronized. Um, if it uh, had lagged behind, then of course it would not have got to advanced life, uh, but it may have had a head start. It may have formed on a planet around an older star. Okay, but then let's ask what we would see. Um, it's taken nearly four billion years from the first life to us, and we've now got this technological civilization which uh, um, could make itself detectable um, to any alien life, uh, aliens out there. Um, but I think most people would say that this civilization of flesh and blood creatures in a collective civilization, may not last more than a few hundred years more. I think that the dead people may, some people would say it, it, it will um, kill itself off. Um, but uh, I'm more optimistic, and I would say that uh, um, what we're going to have in future is um, no longer the slow Darwinian selection, but we're going to have what I call secular intelligent design, which will be um, uh, humans designing um, uh, their progeny to be better adapted to where they are. And uh, if they go to Mars or some, somewhere, they're badly adapted and they want to adapt a lot. Uh, and so uh, they will adapt. Um, but there may be some limits to what could be done with flesh and blood. And so they may become largely electronic, um, download their brains and, have, and be electronic entities. And if they're electronic, then what's important is that they're near immortal. And also, they won't necessarily want to be on a planet with an atmosphere or gravity. They may go off into the blue yonder. And they and if they're near immortal, they won't be daunted by interstellar travel taking a long time. And so um, uh, if, if we looked at what would happen on the Earth in the next millions of years, then there may be these electronic entities which have been sent out and are now far away from the Earth, but still sort of burping away in some in some fashion to be detected. Um, and so uh, this um, this therefore leads me to think that um, if there was another planet which had evolved like the Earth and was ahead of us, uh, it wouldn't be synchronized, so we wouldn't see a flesh and blood civilization, but we would see these electronic progeny, as it were, um, and, and then this raises another question because um, there's the famous argument against there being um, uh, lots of aliens out there, which is that they would um, come and invade us and eat us or something like that. You know, that's a common idea, uh, which sort of Fermi is attributed to have been the first to say. Um, and I think there's a 
um, escape clause to that because these um, entities yeah. would be, uh, say, they evolved by secular intelligent design, designed by their predecessors and then designed by us. Um, and uh, um, whereas Darwinian selection requires two things, it requires aggression and intelligence. This future intelligent design um, uh, may favor intelligence because that's what they were designed for, but it may not favor aggression. And so these future entities, they, they may be um, sitting deep thoughts, thinking deep thoughts, um, and uh, not being at all expansionist. So they could be out there. Yeah. Um, and we can't refute their existence in the way the Fermi paradox is supposed to re refute their existence because um, these would not be aggressive or expansionist. Well, maybe evolution requires competition, not aggression. And I wonder if competition can take forms that are non-expansionary. So you can still have fun competing yeah, yeah. in the space of ideas, which maybe primarily- They'd all be philosophers perhaps, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in, in a way, right. It's, a, it's an intellectual exercise versus a sort of violent exercise. So what is this civilization on Mars look like? So do you think we would more and more you know, maybe start with some genetic modification and then move to basically cyborgs, increasing integration of electronic systems, computational systems into our bodies and brains. This is a theme of um, uh, my other new book out this year, which is called The End of Astronauts. And the End of Astronauts. Co-written co with my um, uh, old friend and colleague from Berkeley, Don Goldsmith. And uh, it's really about um, the, the role of uh, human spaceflight versus sort of robotic spaceflight. Mm. And um, just to summarize what it says, um, it argues that the um, practical case for sending humans into space is getting weaker all the time as robots get better and more capable. Robots 50 years ago couldn't do anything very much, but now they could assemble big structures on space or... Um, in space or on the moon, and they could probably do exploration. Well, present ones uh, on Mars um, can't actually um, do the geology, but future AI will be able to do the geology, and already they can dig on Mars. And so if you want to do exploration of Mars, and of course, even more of um, Enceladus or Europa, where you could never send humans, we depend on robots. And they're far, far cheaper because to send a human to Mars requires feeding them for 200 days on the journey there and bringing them back. And neither of those are necessary for robots. So the practical case for humans is getting very, very weak. And if humans go, it's only as an adventure, really. And so the line in our book is that um, uh, human spaceflight should not be pursued by NASA or public funding agencies. Um, because it has no practical purpose, but also because it's specially expensive if they do it, because they would have to be risk-averse in launching civilians into space. We, I can illustrate that by noting that the shuttle was launched 135 times, and it had two spectacular failures, which each killed the seven people in the crew. Um, and uh, it had been mistakenly presented as safe for civilians 
and there was a woman school teacher killed in one of them. And it was a big national trauma, and they tried to make it safer still. Um, but if you launch into space, just the kind of people prepared to accept that sort of risk, and of course test pilots and people who go hang gliding and go to the South Pole, etc., are yeah. prepared to accept uh, a 2% risk at least for a big challenge, then, of course, you do it more cheaply. And that's why um, uh, I think um, human spaceflight should be left to the billionaires um, and their sponsors, um, because then the taxpayers aren't paying, and they can launch simply those people who are prepared to accept high risks. Space adventure, not space tourism. Yeah. And, and we should cheer them on. Um, and um, uh, as regards where they would go, then um, low Earth orbit, I suspect, can be done quite cheaply in future. But going to Mars, which is very, very expensive and dangerous for humans, um, the only people who would go would be um, these um, adventurers, um, maybe on a one-way trip, like some of the early polar explorers and Magellan and people like that. You know, and, and we would cheer them on. Um, and I expect and I've ever hoped that by the end of a century, there will be a small community of such people on Mars um, living very uncomfortably, far less comfortably than at the South Pole or the bottom of the ocean or the top of Everest. But they will be there uh, um, and they won't have a return ticket, um, but they, they'll be there. Um, Incidentally, I think it's a dangerous delusion to think, as uh, Elon Musk has said, that we can have mass emigration from the Earth to Mars to escape the Earth's problems. Um, it's a dangerous delusion because it's far easier to deal with climate change on Earth than to terraform Mars to make it properly habitable to humans. And so there's no planet B for ordinary risk-averse people. But for these crazy adventurers... Uh, then you can imagine that they would be trying to live on Mars as um, as great pioneers. And by the end of the century, then there will be huge advances compared to the present in two things. First, in, in uh, understanding genetics, so as to genetically redesign one's offspring. And secondly, to uh, use cyborg techniques to um, implant some, something in our brain or indeed think about downloading, etc., and those techniques will, one hopes, be heavily regulated on Earth on prudentials and ethical grounds. And, of course, we are pretty well adapted to the Earth, so we don't have the incentive to do these things in the way they were there. Uh, so um, our argument is that um, it'll be those crazy pioneers on Mars using all these scientific advances, which will be controlled here, away from the regulators, they will transition into a new post-human species. Mm -hmm. And so um, if they do that and if they transition into something which is electronic eventually, because there may be some limits to the capacity of flesh and blood brains anyways, um, then um, those electronic entities um, may not want to stay on a planet like Mars. They may want to go, go away. And so they'll be the precursors of the future um, evolution of life and intelligence coming from the Earth. Um, and, of course, there's one point which perhaps astronomers are more aware of than most people. Most people are aware that we are the outcome of four billion years of evolution. Most of them, nonetheless, probably think that we humans 
are somehow the culmination, the top of the tree. But yes. no astronomers can believe that because astronomers know that the Earth is four and a half billion years old. The sun has been shining for that length of time, but the sun has got six billion years more to go before it flares up and engulfs the inner planet. So the sun is less than halfway through its life, um, and uh, the expanding universe goes on far longer still, maybe forever. And I like to quote Woody Allen, who said, eternity is very long, especially towards the end. Uh, so, uh, so we shouldn't think of ourselves as maybe even the halfway stage yeah. in the emergence of uh, cosmic complexity. And so these entities who are post-cursors, they will go beyond the solar system. And of course, even if there's nothing else out there already, uh, th then they could uh, populate the, the rest of the, the galaxy. And maybe eventually meet the others who are out there expanding as well. Yeah. Expanding and populating yes, yes. with expanded uh, capacity for life and intelligence, all those kinds of things. Well, they, they might, um, but um, uh, uh, again, all better off. We just can't conceive what they'd be like. Um, they won't. They won't be uh, um, green, green men and women with eyes on stalks. You know, they'd be something quite yeah. different. Um, we we just don't know. Um, but there's, there is an interesting question actually, which comes up when I've sometimes spoken to audiences about this topic. That the question of consciousness and self awareness, because you know, going back to philosophical questions, I mean, it's whether an electronic robot would uh, be a zombie, or would it be conscious and self aware, and um, um, I think there's no way of answering this empirically. Um, and um, uh, some people think that consciousness and self-awareness is an emergent property in any sufficiently complicated network that they would be. Others say, well, maybe it's something special to the flesh and blood that we're made of. We don't know. Um, and in a sense, this may not matter um, to the way things behave because we, they, they could be zombies and still behave as though they were intelligent. Um, but... Uh, I remember after one of my talks, someone came up and said, wouldn't it be sad if these future entities, which were the main intelligence in the universe, um, had no self-awareness, so there was nothing which could appreciate the wonder and mystery of the universe and the beauty of the universe in the way that we do. Um, and, and so it does perhaps affect one's perspective of whether you welcome or deplore this possible future scenario, depending on whether you think the, the future post-human entities are conscious and have an aesthetic sense or whether they're just zombies. And uh, of course, you have to be humble to realize that self-awareness may not be the highest form of being, that humans have a very strong ego and a very strong sense of identity like personal identity connected to this particular brain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not so obvious to me that that is somehow the, the highest achievement of a life form, that maybe this kind you of- think something collective would be- It's possible yeah, that, yeah. Uh, well, I think from an alien perspective, when you look at Earth, it's not so obvious to me that individual humans are the atoms of intelligence. It could be the entire organism together, the collective intelligence. And so we humans think of ourselves as individuals, we dress up, we wear ties and suits, and we give each other prizes, but in reality, 
the intelligence, the things we create that are beautiful emerges from our interaction with each other. And that may be where the intelligence is, ideas jumping from one person to another over yeah. generations. Yes, but we have experiences where we uh, can appreciate yes. uh, beauty and wonder and all that. And uh, uh, a zombie may not have those experiences. Yeah, or it may have a very different, they we do, have a very... Yeah, yeah black and white, harsh description of zombie, like a philosophical zombie. Zombie, That could be just a very different way to experience. Uh, and, you know, in terms of the explorers that colonized Mars, I, um, I mean, there, there's several things I want to mention. One, it's just at a high level, to me, that's one of the most inspiring things humans can do is reach out into the unknown. That's in the space of ideas, in the space of science, but also the explorers. Yes, no, I agree with that. And, and that inspires people here on Earth more. Uh, I mean, it did in their, you know, when going to the moon or going out to space in the 20th century, that inspired a generation of scientists. I think that also could be used to inspire a generation of new scientists in the 21st century by reaching out towards Mars. So. In that sense, I think what Elon Musk and others are doing is actually quite inspiring. It's not. No, I agree. Mm, yeah. It's not a recreational thing. It actually has a deep humanitarian purpose of really inspiring yes. the world. And then on the other one, to push back on your thought, you know, I don't think Elon says we want to escape Earth's problems. It's more that we should allocate some small percentage of resources to have a backup plan. Mm -hmm. And because yes. you yourself have spoken about and written about mm -hmm. all the ways we clever humans we could destroy yes. ourselves. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I'm not yes. sure, it does seem, when you look at the long arc of human history, it seems almost obvious that we need to become a multiplanetary species over a period if we are to survive many centuries. It seems that as we get cleverer and cleverer with the ways we can destroy ourselves, mm -hmm. Earth is gonna become less and less safe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, this is one of the things, you know, people talk about climate change and that we need to respond to climate change and that's a long-term investment we need to make. But it's not really long-term, it's a, a span of decades. I think what Elon is doing is a really long-term investment. We should be working on multiplanetary colonization now if we were to have it ready five centuries from now. And so taking those yes. early steps. And then also there's something happens when, you're when you go into the unknown and do this really difficult thing, you discover something very new. You discover something about robotics or materials engineering or nutrition or neuroscience or human relations or political systems that actually work well with humans. You discover all those things. And so it's a it's worthy effort to go out there mm. and uh, try to become cyborgs. <laughs> yeah, um, no, I agree with that. I, I think the only different point I'd make is that um, uh, this is gonna be very expensive if it's done in a risk averse way. And yeah. that's why I think we should be grateful to uh, the billionaires if they're going to sort of foster um, uh, these opportunities uh, for uh, thrill-seeking 
uh, risk takers who we can all admire. Yeah. By the way, I should push back on the billionaires because there's sometimes a negative connotation to the word billionaire. It's not a billionaire. It's a company versus government because governments are billionaires and trillionaires. Yeah, it's yeah. Not, okay. It's not the wealth. It's the, the capitalist uh, imperative. So, uh, which I think deserves a lot more praise than people are giving it. I'm I'm troubled by the sort of criticism like it's billionaires playing with toys for their own pleasure. I think what some of these companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin are doing is some of the most inspiring engineering and even scientific work ever done in human history. No, no, I, I agree. I think the people who've made the greatest wealth are people who've really been mega benefactors. I mean, I think, you know, uh, some of them, some of them, yeah, yeah. So some of them, but 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 those who who founded um, Google and all that, and uh, and even Amazon, they 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 are beneficiaries. They're in a quite different category, in my view, from those who just shuffle around money, um, mm -hmm. or 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 or, or, um, or crypto coins and things like that. Who are, who are now you're negative. really talking yes, trash. Yes, yes. Um, I like but, it. But but, but 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 I think. If they use their money in these ways, that's fine. But but I think um, it's true that the far more money is owned by us collectively as taxpayers. But I think the fact is that in a democracy, um, there'd be big resistance to exposing human beings to very high risks if, in a sense, we share responsibility for it. Yeah, I don't know. Um, and, then, and that's that's the reason I think it could be done much more cheaply by 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 these private funders. That's an interesting hypothesis, but I have to push back. I don't know if it's obvious why NASA spends so much money and takes such a long time to develop the things it was doing. So before Elon Musk came along, because I would love, I would love to live in a world where government actually uses taxpayer money to get some of the best engineers and scientists in the world and actually work across governments, Russia, China, United States, yep, European yep. Union together to do some of these big projects. It's strange that Elon is able to do this much cheaper, much faster. Yes. It could have to be do with risk aversion, you're right. But well, I, wonder... I think it's, 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 the, uh, it's that, it's that he had all the, um, uh, the, the whole assembly within this one building, as it were, rather yeah. than depending on a supply chain. Yeah. Um, but I think it's also uh, that he um, had a Silicon Valley culture and had younger people, whereas um, the, the big aerospace companies, Boeing and Lockheed Martin, um, they had people who were left over from the Apollo program in some cases. And, 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 and so they weren't quite, quite so lively. And indeed, um, quite apart from the controversial issues of the future of human space flight um, in terms of the uh, next generation of big rockets, then uh, the one that uh, Musk is going to launch for the first time this year, um, the huge one, um, is going to be far, far cheaper than the one that NASA has been working on uh, at the same time. Um, and that's because it will have a reusable first stage. And it's going to be, be great. It can launch over 100 tonnes into Earth orbit, and instead that's going to be make it feasible to do things that I used to think were crazy, like having solar energy from space. That's no longer so crazy if you can do that. Um, and also uh, for science, because um, its nose cone could contain within it something uh, as big as the entire unfurled 
James Webb telescope mirror. And therefore you can have a big telescope much more cheaply if you can launch it all in one piece. And so it's going to be hugely beneficial to science and to any practical use of space to have these cheaper rockets that are far more completely reusable than any which NASA had. So I think Musk's done a tremendous service to the space exploration and the whole space technology through these rockets, certainly. Plus, it's some big, sexy rocket. It's just great engineering. Of course, yeah. yeah it's absolutely. like looking at a beautiful big bridge that humans are capable, us descendants of apes are capable to do something so majestic. Yes, uh, and also the way they land coming down yeah. on this bar, that's amazing. It's both mm. controls engineering, it's um, increasing sort of intelligence in these rockets, but also great propulsion engineering materials, uh, entrepreneurship, no, and it just inspires, it just inspires so many people. No, I'm entirely with you on that. Yeah. <sighs> so, would it be exciting to you to see a human being step foot on Mars in your lifetime? Yes, I think it's unlikely in my lifetime since I'm, I'm so ancient. But uh, but I think this this century it's going to happen, and I think that that will indeed be exciting. And uh, uh, I hope there will be a small community by the end of a century. Um, but as as I say, I think they they may go with one way tickets or accepting the risk of a, of a, of, of no return. And so they've got to be people like that. And uh, I still think it's going to be hard to persuade the public to send people when you say straight out that they may never come back. Um, but uh, of course, the Apollo astronauts, they took a high risk. And in fact, in in my um, previous book, I, I quote the speech that had been written for Nixon to be read out if Neil Armstrong got stuck on the moon. <laughs> and yeah, and he, it was yeah. um, written by one of his um, his advisors, um, and very eloquent speech, you know, about uh, um, how they would have come to a noble end, etc. Um, but of course, there was a genuine risk at that time. Um, but uh, but that may have been accepted. But um, clearly, the crashes of the sh shuttle were not acceptable to the American public, even when they were told that this was only a two percent risk, given how often they launched it. And so, so that's what leads me to think that um, uh, it's got to be left to the kind of um, people who are prepared to take these risks. And, and I think um, uh, think of American Adventure as a guy called Steve Fossett, who was a, um, an aviator who did all kinds of crazy things, you know, uh, and, and then a guy who fell um, supersonically um, with, with a parachute from very high altitude. All these people, we all cheer them on. They extend the bounds of humanity. Um, but uh, I don't think the public would be so happy to fund them. I mean, I disagree with that. I think if we change the narrative, we should change the story. You think so? I think yeah. I think there's a lot of people... Because the, 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 the public is happy to fund uh, folks in other domains that take bold, giant risks. First of all, military, for example. Military. Oh, in the military, military. obviously, yes, yes. Uh, I think this is in the name of science, especially if it's sold correctly. I sure as hell would go up there with a the risk. With the, I would, I would take a forty percent chance risk of death mm. for something that's. Yeah. Can, I would. I might want to be even older than I am now. <laughs> 
Well, but then I would go. I guess what I'm trying to communicate yeah. is there's mm-hmm. all there's a lot of people on yeah. earth. That's mm-hmm. the nice feature. And mm-hmm. I'm sure there's going to be a significant percentage or some percentage of people that are, they take on the risk for the adventure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and I, I particularly love that that risk of adventure when taking on inspires people. And just the ripple effect it has across the generation, especially among the young minds is uh, uh, perhaps immeasurable. Mm-hmm. But you're thinking um, that sending humans should be something we do less and less, sending humans to space, that it should be primarily an effort. The, the work of space exploration should be done primarily by robots. Well, I think it, it can be done much more cheaply, obviously, on, on Mars, and uh, uh, no one's thinking of sending humans to Enceladus or Europa, Europa. The, the outer planets. Um, yeah. And... Uh, uh, and the point is, we will have much better uh, robots because, um, uh, just to take an example, um, uh, you've seen these the pictures of um, uh, the, the moons of Saturn and the picture of Pluto and the comet taken by uh, uh, probes. And, and Cassini spent 13 years going around Saturn and its moons after a seven-year voyage. And those are all based on 1990s technology. And if you think of how smartphones have advanced in the 20 years since then, just think how much better one could do instrumenting some very small, sophisticated probe and could send dozens of them to uh, explore the outer planets. And that's that's the way to do that, uh, because no one thinks you could send humans that far. Um, and uh, But I would apply the same argument to, to uh, Mars. And if you want to assemble big structures like... Um, for instance, radio astronomers would like to have a big radio telescope on the far side of the moon, so it's away from the uh, Earth's um, background artificial radio waves. Um, and uh, that could be done by assembling it using robots without people. So on the moon and on Mars, um, I think everything that's useful can be done by machines much more cheaply than by humans. Mm. Do you know the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey? Of course, yes. Uh, well, you must be too young to have seen that when it came out, obviously. Uh, yeah, I remember seeing still... it when it came out. You saw it when it came out? Yeah, yeah, 50 60, years ago. 60, when yeah. was it? 60, yeah. Uh, it was... In the 60s. Yeah, that's right. Mm. And still a classic. Mm. Uh, it's, mm. it's still probably, and, and, for uh, me, uh, the uh, greatest... AI movie ever made. Yes, yes, I agree. Uh, one of the great space movies ever yes, made. Yes. So, well, let me ask you a philosophical question since we're talking about robots exploring space. Do you think HAL 9000 is good or bad? So, for people who haven't watched, mm-hmm. yeah. this computer it's system makes a decision to uh, basically prioritize the mission that it, it, the ship is on over the humans that are part mm-hmm. yes. of the mission. Um, do you think HAL is good or evil? If you ask me, probably in that context, it was probably good, but I think you're raising what is, of course, very much an uh, active issue in everyday life uh, about uh, the extent to which we should um, entrust any important decision uh, to a machine. And, and there again, I'm very worried because I, I think um, if you are recommended for an operation or not given parole from prison or even denied credit by your bank, you feel you should be entitled to an explanation. It's not enough to be told that the machine has 
a more reliable record um, on the whole than humans have of making these decisions. You think you should be given reasons you could understand. And, and that's why I think uh, the present societal trend to um, uh, take away the humans and uh, leave us um, in the hands of decisions that uh, we can't contest uh, is a very dangerous one. I think we've got to be very careful of the extent to which AI, which can handle lots of information, actually makes the decisions without oversight. And I think uh, um, we, we can use them as a supplement. But to take the case of um, uh, radiology and cancer, um, I mean, it's true that the radio radiologist hasn't seen as many uh, uh, x-rays of cancer lungs as the machine. So the machine can certainly help, but you want the human to make the final decision. And I think that's true in most of, of these instances. But if we turn a bit to the short-term concerns with uh, robotics, I think the, the big worry, of course, is the uh, effect it has on um, people's self-respect and their labor market. And I think... Um, uh, my solution would be that we should um, arrange to tax more heavily the big international conglomerates which uh, use the robots um, and um, use that tax to uh, fund decently paid, dignified posts of the kind where being a human being is important. Above all, carers for old people, teachers' assistants for young, gardeners in public parks, and things like that. And if the people who are now working in mind-numbing jobs in Amazon warehouses uh, or in telephone call centers are automated, but those same people are given jobs where being a human is an asset, um, then that's a plus-plus situation. And so th that's the way I think that we should uh, benefit from these these technologies, um, uh, take over the mind-numbing jobs um, and uh, you use machines to make them more efficient, but um, uh, enable um, the people so displaced to do jobs where we do want a human being. I mean, most people, when they're, when they're old, um, they're rich people if they have the choice, they want human carers and all that, don't they? They may want robots to help with some things, empty the bedpans and things like that, but to, but, for, but they they want real people. And, uh, uh, and certainly in this country, and I think even worse in America, um, the, the, the care of old people is completely inadequate and it needs just more human beings to uh, help them cope with everyday life and look after them when they're sick. And, um, uh, and so um, that seems to me the way in which the money raised in tax from these big companies should be deployed. So that's in the short term. But if you actually just look, the fact is where we are today to long-term future in a hundred years, it yeah. does seem that there is some significant chance that the human species is coming to an end in its pure biological form. There's going to be greater and greater integration to genetic modification than a cyborg type of creatures and so you have to think all right well we're gonna have to get from here to there yeah, yeah. and that process is going to be painful and uh, that you know how there's so many different trajectories that take us from one place to another it, it does seem that we need to deeply respect humanness and humanity basic human rights human welfare like happiness and 
all that kind of stuff. No, absolutely. And, and that's why I think we ought to try and slow down the application of these human enhancement techniques and cyborg techniques for humans for just that reason. I mean, uh, that, that's why I want to lead into the people on Mars. Let them do it, but, but, uh, but you, you have a, for just that reason. But they're people too, okay? Yeah, <laughs> people yeah, on yeah. Mars are people too. Yeah, yeah. I, I tend to, you know... But they, they are very poorly adapted to where they are. Right. So that's why they need modification, whereas we're adapted to, to the Earth quite well, so we don't need these modifications. We're, we're happy to be humans living in in the environment where our ancestors lived. So we don't have the same same motives. So I think there's a difference. But I agree, we, we don't want uh, drastic changes probably in, in our, our lifestyle. Um, and uh, that indeed is a worry because some things are changing so fast. Um, but I think um, I'd like to inject a, a note of caution. Um, if you think of the way uh, progress in one technology goes, um, it goes in a sort of spurt. It goes up very fast and then it levels off. Um, let me give you... Two examples. Well, the one we've had already, a human space flight. Um, at the time of the Apollo program, which was only 12 years after um, Sputnik 1, um, I, I was alive then, and I thought it would only be 10 or 20 years further before there were footprints on Mars. Mm -hmm. But as we know, for reasons we could all understand, um, uh, that was and still remains the high point of human space exploration. Um, and that's because it was funded for reason of superpower rivalry at huge public expense. Um, but uh, let me give you an, another case, um, civil aviation. Um, if you think of the change between uh, 1919, when that was Alcock and Brown's first transatlantic flight, to 1979, the first flight of the jumbo jet, it was a big change. But it's more than 50 years since 1969, and we still have jumbo jets more or less the same. So that's an example of something which developed fast. And to take another analogy, um, uh, we've had huge developments in uh, mobile phones, but uh, I suspect the iPhone, the iPhone 24 may not be too different from the iPhone 13. Um, because you know, they, they uh, develop, but then they saturate, and then maybe some new innovation takes over in stimulating economic growth. Yeah, so it's that uh, we have to be cautious about being too optimistic. And we have to be cautious about being too cynical. I think that is well, the... Well, optimistic is begging the question. I mean, do, do we want this very rapid change? Right. So first of all, there's some degree to which technological advancement is, is something, is a force that can't be stopped. And so the question is about directing it versus stopping it or well, slowing it. Well, it can be sort of slopped or slow. Well, take human spaceflight. There could be, have been uh, footprints on Mars if... Um, if America had gone on spending 4% of the federal budget on the project after yes. Apollo. So but the reason... So it's, uh, there were very good reasons, but um, uh, and we could we could have had supersonic flight, but Concorde came and went during the 50 years. During which but had the, the reason it didn't progress is yeah. not because we realize it's not good for human society. The reason it didn't progress is because it, it couldn't make... Uh, sort of from a capitalist perspective, it couldn't make, uh, there, there was no short-term or long-term way for it to make money. So for, maybe. But, isn't, but that's the same as saying it's not good for society. I don't think everything that makes money is good for society and everything that doesn't make money is bad for society, right? That's a, that's a difficult, that's a difficult thing we're always contending with when we look at social networks. 
It's not obvious, even though they make a tremendous amount of money, that they're good for society, especially how they're currently implemented with advertisement and engagement maximization. Mm -hmm. So that's the constant struggle of... Oh, you know, I agree with you. There's many that's innovations us. are damaging. Yes, yeah. Mm. Yes. Uh, well... But I would have thought that supersonic flight was uh, something that would benefit only a tiny elite. Sure. Uh, a huge yes. expense and environmental damage. That was obviously something which they're very glad not to have, in my opinion. Yeah. But perhaps there was a way to do it where it could benefit the general populace. If you were to think about airplanes... Wouldn't you think that in the early days, airplanes would have been seen as something that can surely only benefit 1% at most of the population, as opposed to a much larger percentage? There, there's, there's another aspect of capitalist system that's able to drive down costs once you get the thing kind of going. So, the, you know, we get together maybe with taxpayer money and get the thing going at first. And once it gets going, companies step up and drive down the cost and actually mm. make it so that uh, blue yeah. collar folks can actually start using the stuff. Yeah, and sometimes actually... that does happen. That's good. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's that's yeah. again the the double edged sword of uh, human civilization that some technology hurts us, some benefits us, and we don't know ahead of time. We can just do our best. And, yes. and there's be... a gap between what could be done and what we collectively decide to do. Yes. In, in the term, you could push forward some developments um, faster than we do. Let me ask you, in your book on the future prospects for humanity, you imagine a time machine that allows you to send a tweet-length message to scientists in the past, <laughs> like to Newton. Yes. Um, what tweet would you send? That's an interesting thought experiment. What message would you send to Newton about what we know today? Well, I think he'd love to know that there were planets around other stars. Um, he'd he'd yes. like to know that... Uh, that would really blow his mind. He'd right? like to know that everything was made of atoms. Uh, he'd like to know that if he looked a bit more carefully through his prisms um, uh, and uh, looked at light not just from the sun but from, from some flames, he might get the idea that uh, different substances emitted light of different, different colors and he might have uh, been twigged to discover some things that had to wait two or three hundred years could have given him those clues i think it's kind of it's fascinating to think to look back at how little he understood people at that time understood about our world mm -hmm. yes and well, how and, much uh, we've and certainly about the cosmos because of course cosmos, um, yes. well if we think about astronomy um then until about 1850 um uh, astronomy was a matter of um, um, uh, the positions of how the stars and the planets moved around, etc. Of course, that goes back a long way, but Newton understood why the planets moved around in ellipses. But uh, he didn't understand um, why the solar system was all in a plane, what we call the ecliptic, and uh, he didn't understand it. No one did till the mid-19th century what the stars are made of. I mean, they were thought to be made of some fifth essence, not earth, air, thar, and water like everything else, you know. Um, and it was only after 1850 when um, people did use uh, prisms more precisely to get to get uh, spectra that they realized that the, the sun was made of the same stuff as the earth and indeed the stars were. And uh, it wasn't until um, 1930 that people knew about nuclear energy and knew what kept the sun shining for 
for so long. So it was quite late that some of these key ideas came in, you know, which would have completely transformed Newton's views and, of course, the uh, entire scale of the solar, of the ga- galaxy and and the rest of the universe. Just so imagine came later. what he would have thought about the Big Bang or even just general relativity. Absolutely. Just yeah, gravity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. him and Einstein talking for, for a couple yeah, of yeah. weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would he be able to make sense of space-time and the curvature of space-time? And Well, I think, given a quick course, I mean, he was sort of, uh, <laughs> if one looks back, he, he was really a unique intellect in a way, you know, and... Uh, uh, he said that he thought better than everything, everyone else by thinking on things continually and thinking very deep thoughts. And um, so he, he was a utterly remarkable intellect, obviously. But of course, scientists aren't all like that. I think it's very, one thing that interests me, having spent a life among scientists, is what a variety of uh, mindsets and mental styles they have. Yes. Um, and, um, um, well, just to contrast Newton and Darwin, um, Darwin uh, uh, said, uh, uh, and he's probably correct, that he that he thought he just had a um, as, as much sort of a common sense and reasoning power as the average lawyer, hmm. uh, and, and that's probably true because his his ability was to sort of uh, collect data and think through things deeply. Um, that's a quite different kind of thinking from what was involved in a, in Newton or someone doing abstract mathematics. I think in the 20th century, the coolest, well, there's the theory, but from an astronomy perspective, black holes is one of the most fascinating entities to have been through theory and through experiment to have emerged mm. from. No, obviously, I agree. Science. It's an amazing story. That, uh, um, uh, Well, of course, what's interesting is Einstein's reaction because of course, although, as you know, we now accept this is one of the most remarkable predictions of Einstein's theory, uh, he never took it seriously, even believed it. Yeah. Um, although it was a consequence of uh, a solution of his equations, which someone discovered just a year after his theory, Schwarzschild. Um, but he, he never took it seriously, and others did. Um, but then, of course, um, uh, well, this is something that I've been involved in actually finding evidence for black holes, and that's come in the last 50 years. And um, uh, so now there's pretty compelling evidence that they exist um, as the remnants of stars or big ones in the centers of galaxies. And we, un- we understand uh, what's, the, what's going on. We have ideas vaguely on how, how they form. Uh, and, of course, uh, uh, gravitational waves have been detected, and that's an amazing piece of technology. LIGO is one of the most incredible engineering efforts yes, of all and, time. And that's an example where the engineers deserve the most of the credit because the precision is, it, well, as they said, yeah. it's like um, measuring the thickness of a hair at the distance of Alpha Centauri. Yeah, it's it, incredible. 10 to the minus 21. So maybe actually if we step back, what are black holes? What do we humans understand about black holes? And what's still unknown? Einstein's theory, extended by people like Roger Penrose, tells us that um, black holes are, in a sense, rather simple things, basically, because uh, they are um, um, solutions of Einstein's equations. Um, And the thing that was shown in the 1960s by Roger Penrose in particular, um, and by a few other people, was that um, a black hole, when it forms and settles down, is defined just by two quantities, its mass and its spin. 
so they're actually very standardized objects. It's amazing that objects as standardized as that um, can be so big and can lurk in the vessel solar system. Uh, and so that's the situation for a ready formed black hole. But the way they form, obviously, is very messy and complicated. Um, and uh, uh, one of the things that I've worked on a lot is um, what the phenomena are which are best attributed to black holes and what may lead to them and all that. And um, uh, Which, uh, can you explain to that? So what 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 are the different phenomena that lead to a black hole? Okay, well, let's, let's talk yes. about it. This is oh, so okay, cool. Well, uh, this is so cool. So, yeah. Yes, okay. okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think one thing that only became understood really in the 1950s, I suppose, and beyond was um, uh, how stars evolve differently depending on how heavy they are. Yeah. The, the sun... Um, burns hydrogen to helium, and then when it's run out of that, it contracts to be a white dwarf. And uh, we know how long that will take. It'll take about 10 billion years altogether for its lifetime. Um, but big stars burn up their fuel more quickly and more interestingly, because when they've turned hydrogen to helium, they then get even hotter, so they can fuse helium into carbon and go up the periodic table. And then they eventually explode when they have an energy crisis and they blow out that process material, which, as a digression, is crucially important because um, all the atoms inside our bodies were synthesized inside a star, a star that lived and died more than five billion years ago before our solar system formed. Mm -hmm. And so we each have inside us atoms made in thousands of different stars all over the Milky Way. And that's an amazing idea. And my predecessor, Fred Hoyle, in 1946 was the first person to suggest that idea. And that's been borne out. That's a wonderful idea. Um, so um, that's how massive stars explode. And they leave behind something which is very exotic and of two kinds. One possibility is a neutron star. And these were first discovered in 1967, 68. Um, these are stars a bit heavier than the sun, uh, which are compressed to an amazing density. So the whole mass of more than the sun's mass is in something about 10 miles across. Uh, so um, they're extraordinarily dense, very exotic physics. Um, and and they've, they've, been, they've been studied in immense detail. And they've been real laboratories because the good thing about astronomy, apart from exploring what's out there, is to use the fact that the cosmos has provided us with a lab mm -hmm. with far more extreme conditions than we could ever simulate. And so we learn lots of basic physics from looking at these objects. Um, and that's been true of neutron stars. But for black holes, that's even more true because the um, uh, bigger stars, um, when they collapse, they leave something behind in the center, which is too big to be a stable white dwarf or neutron star becomes a black hole. And we know that there are lots of black holes weighing about 10 or up to 50 times as much as the sun, which are the remnants of, of stars. They were detected first 50 years ago when a black hole was orbiting around another star and grabbing material from the other star, which swirled into it and gave us X-rays. So the X-rays astronomers found these um, uh, uh, objects orbiting around an ordinary star and emitting X-ray radiation very intensely, varying on a very short time scale. So something very small and dense was giving that radiation. That was the first evidence for black holes. Um, but then the other thing that happened was realizing that there was a different class of monster black holes in the centers of galaxies. And um, 
these are responsible for what's called quasars, which is when uh, um, something in the center of a galaxy is grabbing some fuel and outshines all the 100 billion stars or so in the rest of the galaxy. It's a giant beam yeah, and of in, in, light. And in many cases, it's a be, it's a be, it's a beam. Is, is that, a, yeah. that's got to be the most epic thing the universe produces is quasars. Um, well, it's a it's a debate about what's most epic, but uh, quasars maybe, or maybe gamma ray bursts or something. But but they they are remarkable, and they were a mystery for a long time. And they're one of the things I worked on in my uh, younger days. So even um, though they're so bright, they're still a mystery. And but well, you, I, I wouldn't you say you can only see them. I think they're less of a mystery now. I think we do understand basically what's going on. How how were quasars discovered? Well, they were discovered when astronomers found things that looked like stars and that they were small enough to be a point-like, mm-hmm. and not resolved by a telescope, but uh, uh, outshone an entire galaxy. Yeah, and uh, that's it, suspicious. Yes, but, 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 uh, <laughs> um, but then they, they realized that what they were, they were um, uh, objects which you now know are black holes, and they were... Um, uh, uh, black holes were capturing gas, and that gas was getting very hot, but it was producing um, far more energy than all the stars added together. And it was the energy of the uh, black hole that was um, lighting up all the gas in the galaxy, so you've got a spectrum of it uh, there. So so th- th- this was something which was realized from the 1970s onwards. Um, and uh, as you say, the other thing we've learned is that they often do produce these jets squirting out, um, which could be detected in uh, in all rave bands. So, um, so there's now a standard picture. Yeah, black hole generating jets of light. Yeah, yeah. At the center of most galaxies. Yes, that's right. Do we know? Do we have a sense if every galaxy has one of these big, big boys? Well, big uh, black most, holes. Most galaxies have big black holes. They vary in size. The one in our Galactic center. Do we know much about ours? We we do. Yes, we um, we know um, uh, it weighs about as much as four million suns, uh, which is less than some, which are several billion in other galaxies. Um, and we, but we know this um, the one in our galactic center isn't very bright or conspicuous, and that's because not much is falling into it at the moment. Mm-hmm. If if a black hole is isolated, then of course it doesn't radiate. It only uh, all that radiates is gas swirling into it, which is very hot or has magnetic it's fields. O- it's only radiating the thing it's murdering or consuming, right. or however you put it. Yeah, that, that, that's right. And so so um, it's thought that our galaxy may have been bright, bright at some time in the past, ah. but now, uh, uh, and that, that's when the, the black hole formed or grew, um, but, but now it's uh, not um, capturing very much gas. And so it's it's rather... It's rather faint and only detected indirectly and by fairly weak radio emission. And uh, and so uh, I think the answer to your question is that um, uh, we suspect that most galaxies have a black hole in them. So that means at some stage in their lives, or maybe one or more stages, they went through a phase of being like a quasar where that black hole um, captured gas and became very, very bright. But for the rest of their the lives, the black holes are fairly quiescent because there's not much gas falling into them. And so this universe of ours is sprinkled with a bunch of galaxies and giant black holes yes. with like very large number of stars uh, orbiting these black holes and then planets orbiting 
likely it seems like planets orbiting almost every one of those stars or, <laughs> and just this beautiful universe of ours. Well, what happens when galaxies collide, when these two big black holes collide? Is that... Yes. Is, uh, uh, well, um, what would happen is that... Uh, well, and I should say that um, this is going to happen near us one day, but not for four billion years, because the Andromeda galaxy, which is the biggest galaxy near to us, which is about nearly three million light years away, which is a big disk galaxy with a black hole its hub, rather like our Milky Way. And um, that's uh, um, in falling towards us because they're both in a common gravitational potential well. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, that will collide with our galaxy in about four billion years. But it'll be, it'll be, maybe it'll be less a collision and more of a dance because it'll be like a swirling situation. Well, it's a swirling, on. but eventually there'll be, there'll be a merger. They'll, they'll go through each other and then merge. In fact, uh, um, there are nice movies to be made of this, you know, computer simulations, yes. and it'll, it'll go through. Um, and, um, uh, and then um, the, there's a black hole in the sense of Andromeda and our galaxy, and the, galaxy, the black holes will uh, settle towards the center. Yes. Then they will orbit around each other very fast, and then they will eventually merge. And that'll produce a big burst of gravitational waves. Yes. Um, a very big burst. That an um, alien civilization with a LIGO-like detector will be able to detect. Yes. Well, in fact, we'll, but we can detect these with um, their lower frequencies than the, uh, the waves that have been detected by LIGO. So there's a, a space interferometer which can detect these. They're, they're about, it's about one cycle per hour rather than about 100 cycles per second. Yes. It's the ones that detected. Um, but but that, that, that will happen. But um, uh, thinking back to what will happen in four billion years to uh, any of our descendants, they'll be okay because the, um, the, the two disk galaxies will merge and it'll end up as a sort of amorphous elliptical galaxy. But um, the stars won't be much closer together than they are now. Uh, it'll, it'll still be just twice as many stars in a structure almost as big. And so um, uh, the chance of uh, another star colliding with our sun would still be very small. And, yeah, because uh, there's actually a lot of space between indeed, stars it, it, and planets. Yes, and yes the chance of a star getting close enough to affect our solar system's orbit is small, and it, it won't change that very much. So uh, uh, that would you could be, be reassured. A heck of a starry sky, though. What would that look like? Well, it like? won't make much difference even to that, actually. It'll just be... Um, Wouldn't that look kind of beautiful when you're swirling? Or is oh, because it's be swirling as, so slowly? Yeah, be, but they're far away, so it'd be, be twice as many stars in the sky. Yeah, and but the pattern changes. The in pattern, interesting yeah, ways. the pa pattern will change a bit, and uh, there won't be the Milky Way because the Milky Way uh, uh, across the sky is because we are looking in the disk of our galaxy, and uh, you lose that, and because the um, the disk will be so sort of disrupted, and. Uh, It'll be a more sort of spherical distribution. And, of course, many galaxies are like that. Um, and that's probably because they have been through mergers of this kind. If we survive four billion years, we would likely be able to survive beyond that. Oh, yeah. What, what's the other thing on the horizon for humans uh, in terms of the sun burning out, all those kinds of interesting cosmological threats to our yes. civilization? Well, I think uh, on the... Cosmological time scale, of course, it won't be humans because uh, uh, even, if, else, even yes. if evolution's got no faster than Darwinian, and I would argue it will be faster than Darwinian in the future, uh, then um, 
we're thinking about six billion years before the sun dies. So any entities watching the death of the sun, if they're still around, they'd be as different from much as we are from slime mold or something, you know, <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and far more different still if they become electronic. So on that time scale, we just can't predict anything. But I think going back to um, uh, to, to the uh, human time scale, um, then um, uh, we've talked about whether there'll be people on Mars by the end of a century. And uh, even in these long perspectives, then indeed this century is very special because it may see the transition between purely flesh and blood entities to those which are sort of cyborgs. And, so, and that'll be a, an important transition in, um, um, in, in biology and complexity in this century. But of course, the other importance, and this has been the theme of a couple of my older books, is that um, this is the first century when one species, namely our species, has the future of the planet in its hands. And that's because of... Uh, um, two types of uh, concerns. One is that there are more of us, we're more demanding of energy and resources, and therefore we are for the first time uh, uh, changing the whole planet through um, um, climate change, loss of biodiversity, and all those issues. This has never happened in the past because having enough humans have been much in power. So this is a, um, uh, an effect that's obviously... It's high on everyone's agenda now, and rightly so, because um, we, we've got to ensure that we leave a, a heritage that isn't eroded or damaged to future generations. Um, and so, so that's one class of threats. But there's another thing that worries me, perhaps more than many people seem to worry, and that's the uh, threat of misuse of technology. Um, and so this is particularly because um, technologies empower even small groups of, of uh, malevolent people or indeed even careless people to create some effect which could cascade globally. And um, um, to take an example, um, a, uh, a dangerous pathogen or pandemic, um, I mean, my worst nightmare is that um, there could be um, some small group that uh, can engineer a virus to make it more virulent or more transmissible than a natural virus. This is so-called gain-of-function experiments, which were done on the flu virus 10 years ago and can be done for others. Um, and, of course, we now know from COVID-19 uh, that um, uh, our world is so interconnected that uh, a disaster in one part of the world can't be confined to that part and will spread globally. So it's possible for a, a few dissidents with expertise in biotech could create a global catastrophe of that kind. And also, I think um, uh, we need to worry about very large-scale disruption by cyber attacks. In fact, um, I quote in one of my books a 2012 report from the uh, American Pentagon uh, about the um, possibility of a state-level cyber attack on the electricity grid in the eastern United States, which is it could happen. And it says at, at the end of, of this chapter that this would merit a nuclear response. Mm -hmm. This is a pretty scary possibility. That was 10 years ago. And I think now what would have needed a state actor then could be done perhaps by a small group empowered by AI. And so there's obviously been a, um, an arms race between the uh, um, 
the cyber criminals and the cybersecurity people. Not clear which side is winning. But the, the main point is that as we become more dependent on more integrated systems, then uh, we get more vulnerable. And, uh, um, and, and, and so we have the knowledge, then the misuse of that knowledge becomes um, uh, more and more of a threat. And, and I'd say bio and cyber are, are the, the two biggest concerns. Um, and uh, if we depend too much on AI and complex systems, then um, just breakdowns, it may be that they, they break down. And um, um, even if it's an innocent breakdown, then it may be pretty hard to mend it. And just think how much worse the pandemic would have been if we'd lost the internet in the middle of it. Because we depended more than ever for communication and everything else on 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 the internet and zooms and all that um and if that if that had broken down that would have made things far worse and those are the kinds of threats that we i think need to be more energized and politicians need to be more energized um to uh minimize and um one of the things i've been doing in the last year um through being a member of our part of our parliament is sort of uh um i helped to instigate a committee to think more on better preparedness for um, extreme technological risks and things like that. So th they're a big concern in my, my mind that uh, we've got to make sure that we um, can benefit from these um, uh, advances, um, but safely, because um, uh, the stakes are getting higher and you know, the benefits are getting great, as we know, huge benefits from, from computers, but, but also huge downsides as well. And one of the things this war in Ukraine has shown mm -hmm. one of the most terrifying things outside of the humanitarian crisis is that at least for me, I realized that the human capacity to initiate nuclear war is greater than I thought. I thought the yeah. lessons of the past have been learned. It seems that we hang on the brink of nuclear war with this conflict, like every single day, with just one mistake or bad actor or the actual leaders of the particular nations launching a nuclear strike and all hell broke, breaks yes, loose. Yes. <laughs> so then add into that picture cyber attacks and so on that can uh, lead to, to confusion and chaos. And then out of that confusion, um, Calculations are made such that uh, a nuclear launch is a, a nuclear weapon is launched, and it's and then you're talking about. I, I mean, I don't. The directs probably sixty, seventy percent of humans on Earth are dead instantly, and then the rest. I mean, it's uh, basically ninety nine percent of the human population is wiped out in the period of well, it may five not years. be that bad, but we are. Devastation for civilization, of course, um, and of course you're, you're quite right that this could happen very quickly um, because of uh, um, you know, uh, information coming in, and there's a there's hardly enough time for human um, collected and careful thought. And there, ha there have been uh, recorded cases of false alarms. There's several where um, where there've been suspected um, attacks from the other side, and uh, um, fortunately. They've been realized to be false alarms soon enough, but but this could happen. And there's a new class of threats, actually, which in, in our center in Cambridge people are thinking about, which is that um, um, the uh, command and control system of 
the nuclear weapons and the submarine fleet and all that um, is now more automated and uh, could be subject to cyber attacks. And that's an, a new threat which didn't exist um, 30 years ago. And so um, I, I think, indeed, it, it's, it's, we're in a sort of scary world, I think. Um, and uh, uh, it's because things happen faster and human beings aren't in such direct and immediate control because so much is delegated to machines. Um, and also because the world is so much more interconnected uh, than uh, uh, some um, uh, local event can cascade globally in a way it never could in the past and much faster. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword because yeah. the inter interconnectedness brings... Uh... Um, brings a higher quality of life across a lot of metrics. Yeah, it can do. But of course, the, the, there again, I mean, if you think of supply chains where we get stuff from around the world, then um, one lesson we've learned is that there's a trade-off between resilience and efficiency. And it's resilient uh, to have uh, um, uh, an inventory in stock and to depend on local supplies, whereas it's more efficient to have... Um, uh, long supply chains, but the risk there is that uh, a break in one link in one chain can screw up car production. This has already happened in the pandemic, so so there's a trade-off. And there are examples. I mean, for instance, the other thing we learned was that uh, uh, it may be efficient to have 95% of your hospital intensive care beds occupied all the time, which has been the UK situation, whereas to do what the Germans do and always keep 20% of them free for an emergency is really a sensible precaution. And so I think um, we've probably learned lots of lessons from COVID-19 and they would include um, rebalancing the trade-off between uh, resilience um, and efficiency. Boy, the, the fact that COVID-19, a pandemic that could have been a lot, a lot worse, brought the world to its knees anyway. It could be far worse in terms of its... Uh, a fatality rate or something fatality like that. Fatality rate, yeah. Of course. yeah, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So the fact that that, I mean, it, it revealed so many flaws in our human institutions. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yes. And, and I, I think you know, I'm rather pessimistic because um, uh, I do worry about the, uh, the, the bad, bad actor or the small group who can produce catastrophe. Um, and um, uh, uh, if you imagine someone with access to the kind of equipment that's available in university labs or industrial labs, and they could create some dangerous pathogen, um, then even one such person is too many. And how can we stop that? Because uh, uh, it's true that you can uh, have regulations. I mean, academies are having meetings, et cetera, about how to regulate these new biological experiments, et cetera, make them safe. But even if you have all these regulations, then enforcing regulations is yeah. pretty hopeless. We can't enforce the tax laws globally. We can't enforce the drug laws globally. And so similarly, we can't readily enforce the um, uh, laws against uh, people doing these dangerous experiments, even if all, all the governments say they should be prohibited. And so my, my line on this is that uh, all nations are going to face a big trade-off between three things we value. Um, uh, freedom, security, and privacy. And I think uh, um, different nations will uh, make that choice differently. Um, the Chinese would give up privacy and have more, certainly more security, if not more liberty. 
Um, but I think uh, um, in, in in our countries, um, I think we're going to have to give up more privacy in the same way. That's a really interesting trade-off. Um, but there's also something about human nature here where I personally believe that all humans are capable of good and evil. And there's some aspect to which we can fight this by encouraging people incentivizing people towards uh, the better angels of their nature. So uh, in order for a small group of people to create, to engineer deadly pathogens, mm -hmm. you have to have people that for whatever trajectory took them in life, wanting to do that kind of thing. And if we can aggressively work on a world that sort of sees the beauty in everybody and encourages the flourishing of everybody in terms of mental health, in terms of meaning, in terms yeah. of all those kinds of things. That's one way to fight the development no. of um, uh, of weapons that can lead to atrocities. Yes, and I completely agree with that and to reduce the reason why people feel embittered. Yes. Um, um, but, but of course, we've got a long way to go to do that because uh, if you look at the present world, um, nearly everyone in Africa has reason to feel embittered because um, uh, their economic development is lagging behind most of the rest of the world and the prospects of getting out of uh, the poverty trap is, uh, is rather bleak, especially as the population grows. Because, for instance, um, they can't develop like the Eastern Tigers by cheap manufacturing because robots are taking that over. Uh, so that they, will, they naturally feel embittered um, uh, by the inequality. And, of course... Um, what we need to have is some sort of mega version of the Marshall Plan that helped Europe in the post-World War II era um, to enable Africa to develop. That would be um, not just an altruistic thing for Europe to do, but uh, in our own interest, because otherwise um, uh, those in Africa will feel massively disaffected. Um, and indeed, um, it's a manifestation of the excessive inequalities, the fact that the 2,000 richest people in the world have enough money to double the income of the bottom billion. Yeah. And, uh, and and that's uh, um, you know, an indictment of the ethics of the world. And this is where I've had, I, my friend Stephen Pinker and I have had some contact. We wrote joint articles on bio threats and all that. Um, but um, uh, he writes these books being very optimistic about quoting figures about how uh, um, life expectancy has gone up, infant mortality has gone down, literacy has gone up, and all those things, and he's quite right about that. Um, and so he says the world's getting getting better. And the, Do you disagree it, with your friend, Stephen Pinker? Um, well, I mean, I, 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 I agree with those facts, okay? <laughs> but but I think he misses out, he misses out part of the picture um, yeah. because um, there's a new class of, of threats which uh, um, hang over us now, which didn't hang over us in the past. And I would also question whether we have collectively improved our ethics at all, because um, uh, let's think back to the Middle Ages. It's true that, as Pinker says, the average person was uh, uh, in a more miserable state than they are today on average, um, for all the reasons he quantifies. That's, that's fine. Um, but in the Middle Ages, there wasn't very much that could have been done to improve people's lot in life because of lack of knowledge and lack of science, etc. Um, so the gap between the way the world was, which is pretty miserable, and the way the world could have been, which wasn't all that much better, was fairly narrow. 
Whereas now, the gap between the way the world is and the way the world could be is far, far wider. And therefore, I think we are ethically um, more uh, um, at fault uh, in allowing this gap to get wider than it was in medieval times. And so I, I would very much question and dispute the idea that we are um, ethically um, in advance of our predecessors. That's a, collectively. a lot of interesting hypotheses in there. And I don't, there, it's a, it's a fascinating question of how much is the size of that gap between the way the world is and the way the world could be is a reflection of our ethics, or maybe sometimes it's just a reflection of a very large number of people. Uh, like m maybe it's a, a technical challenge too. It's not just- Well, of our political systems. Political systems, yeah, like yeah. how many, and we're trying to figure this thing out. Like there's 20th century, tried this thing that sounded really good on paper, of collective, the communism type of things. <laughs> and it's like, ooh, turned out at least the way that was done there, uh, at least the atrocities and the suffering and the murder of tens of millions of people. Okay, so that didn't work, let's try democracy. And that seems to have a lot of flaws, but it seems to be the best thing we got so far. So we're trying to figure this out. As our technologies become more and more powerful, have the capacity to do a lot of good to the world, but also unfortunately have the capacity to destroy the entirety of the human civilization. And I think it's social media generally, uh, which uh, um, makes it harder to get a, a sort of moderate consensus because in the old days when people got their news filtered through responsible journalists in this country, the BBC and the main newspapers, etc., cetera, um, they would muffle the crazy extremes. Whereas now, of course, um, they're, they're on the internet, and if you click on them, you get something still more extreme. And so I think we are, are seeing a sort of dangerous polarization, which I think is going to make all countries harder to govern, and that's something which I'm pessimistic about. So to push back, it is true that brilliant people like you highlighting the limitations of social media is making them realize the the stakes and the failings of social media companies, yeah. but at the same time, they're revealing the division. It's not like they're creating it, they're revealing it in part. And so that puts a lot of, uh, that puts the responsibility in, into the hands of social media and the opportunity in the hands of social media to alleviate some of that division. So it could, in the long arc of human history, result, so bringing some of those uh, divisions and the anger and the hatred to the surface so that we can talk about it. And as opposed to uh, disproportionately promoting it, actually just surfacing it so we can get over it. Well, you're assuming that the uh, the fat cats are more public spirited than the politicians. And I'm not sure about that. I think there's a lot of money to be made in being publicly spirited. I think there's a lot of money to be made in increasing the amount of love in the world, despite the sort of public perception that all the social media companies' heads are interested in doing is making money. I think that may be true, but I just personally believe people being happy is a hell of a good business model. And so making as many people happy, helping them flourish in a long-term way, that's a lot of way to make that's a good way to make well money. i think on the other hand i think guilt and shame are good motives to make you behave better in future
Okay, so that's my, those experience, two together, my experience. <laughs> from maybe in the political perspective, yeah. certainly, certainly mm -hmm. the case. Yeah. But it yeah. does make sense now that we can destroy ourselves with nuclear weapons, with engineered pandemics, and so on, that the aliens would show up. <laughs> that, like, if I was the, um, you know, had a leadership position, maybe as a scientist or otherwise in an alien civilization, and I would come upon Earth, I would try to watch from a distance, to mm -hmm. not interfere. Yeah. And I would start interfering when these life forms start becoming quite, they have the capacity to be destructive. And so, I mean, it's a, it is an interesting mm -hmm. question when people talk about UFO sightings and all those kinds of things that at least These are benign aliens you're thinking of benign yes okay. i mean they mm -hmm. benign almost curious almost um partially as with all curiosity partially selfish to try to observe is there something interesting about this particular evolutionary system um, because i'm sure even to aliens earth is a curiosity yeah well it's in this very special stage you know, special, I mean, special, special, perhaps this, a very this century short, is very special yes. among the 45 million centuries the Earth experienced already. So yes. it is a very special time where they should be specially interested. But um, I think going back to the um, the politics, um, the other problem is uh, getting people who have short-term concerns to care about the long-term. By the long-term, I now mean just uh, looking 30, or 30 years or so ahead. You know, I know people who've been scientific advisors to governments and things, and they may make these points, but of course they don't have much traction because, as we know very well, any politician has an urgent agenda of very worrying things to deal with, and so um, they aren't going to prioritize these issues which are um, longer longer term and less immediate and don't just concern their constituents, it may concern distant parts of the world. Um, and so... Uh, I think I think um, what what we have to do is to um, um, uh, enlist charismatic individuals to convert the public. Because if the if the politicians know the public care about something, climate change is an example, um, they, then uh, they they will make decisions which um, uh, uh, take cognizance of that. Um, and I think for that to happen, uh, then we do need some. Um, public individuals who are respected um, by everyone um, and who have a high profile. And in the climate context, well, I, I would say that I've mentioned four very disparate people who've had such a big effect in the last few years. One is Pope Francis, the other is David Attenborough, the other is Bill Gates, and the other is Greta Thornburg. And those four people have certainly had a big shift in public opinion. Um, and uh, 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 and even change the rhetoric of business, although how deep that is, I don't know. I, and so, the, yeah, uh, but, I, but, 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 but politicians yeah. um, uh, can't let these issues drop down off the agenda um, if, if there's a public clamor. And it, it needs people like that to keep the public clamor going. To push back a little bit, so those four are very interesting, and I have deep respect for them. They have, except David Attenborough, uh, David Attenborough is a really, I mean, everybody loves him. I mean, I can't say anything, but the, you know, with Bill Gates and Greta, there is, that that also has created a lot of division. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. And this mm -hmm. is a big problem. So it's not just charismatic 
I, I put that responsibility actually on the scientific community. And, and the Pope does too, yeah. Yep. Uh, and the politicians. So we need the charismatic leaders, and they're rare. Yeah, yeah. When you look at human history, those are the ones that make a difference. Those are the ones that um, not deride, they, they inspire the populace to think long-term. The JFK, we do... We'll go to the moon in this decade, not because it's easy, but because it is hard. <laughs> There's no discussion about like um, short-term political gains or any of that kind of stuff uh, in in the vision of going to the moon yeah, yeah. or going to Mars or taking on gigantic uh, uh, projects or taking on world hunger or taking on climate change or uh, the education system, all those things that require long-term significant investment that, that requires. But it's hard to find those people. And, yep. and incidentally, I think another problem, is, which is a downside of social media, is that um, uh, of younger people I know, um, the number who would contemplate a political career has gone down because of the, the pressures on them and their family from social media. Um, it's a hell of a job now. Um, and so I think we are all losers because the quality of people who choose that uh, path is, um, uh, is is really dropping, and as we see by the quality of those who are in these competitions. That said, I think uh, the silver lining there is the quality of the competition actually is inspiring because it's it's it shows to you that there's a dire need of leaders which I think would be inspiring to young people to step into the yeah, yeah, fold. Yeah. I mean, great leaders are not afraid of a little bit of, of a little bit of uh, fire on social media. So if you have you have a 20-year-old kid now, a 25-year-old kid, is seeing how the world respond, responded to the pandemic, seeing the geopolitical division over the war in Ukraine, mm -hmm. seeing the brewing war between the West and China, we need great leaders and there's a hunger for them and the time will come. When 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 they step up, I, I I I believe that. But also to add to your list of four, he doesn't get enough credit. I've been defending him in this conversation. Elon Musk, in yeah. terms of the fight in climate change, uh, but he also has led to a lot of division. But we we need more. <laughs> David Edinburgh. Yeah. No. No. I mean, I, I'm a fan. Um, <laughs> Definitely. I mean, I've heard him described as a 21st century Brunel for his innovation, and that and that's true. But uh, um, whether he's a, an ethical inspiration, I don't know. Yeah, he has a, a a lot of fun on Twitter. Well, let me ask you to put on your wise sage hat. <laughs> what advice would you give to young people today? Maybe they're teenagers in high school, maybe early college. Uh, what advice would you give to a career or have a life they can be proud of? Yes, mm. Well, I'd be very diffident, really, um, about offering any any wisdom. But uh, I think <laughs> I think they they should they should realise that um, uh, um, the choices they make at that time are um, important. And um, from experience of I've had and with many friends, um, many people don't realise that opportunities open until it's too late. They somehow think that some opportunities are only open to a few privileged people and they don't even try yeah. and, and that they could succeed. Um, but um, uh, if I focus on people 
working in um, some profession I know about, like science, I would say pick an area to work in where new things are happening, uh, where uh, you can uh, do something that the old guys never had a chance to think about. Um, don't go into a field that's fairly stagnant because then um, there won't be much to do or you'll be trying to tackle the problems that the old guys got stuck on. And so I think in science, um, uh, I can give people good advice that they should um, for, uh, pick a subject where there are exciting new developments and also, of course, something which uh, suits their style because even within science, which is just one profession, um, there's a big range of style between the sort of solitary thinker, the person who does field work, the person who works in a big team, etc., and whether you like computing or uh, mathematical thought, etc. So pick some subject that suits your style and where things are happening fast um, and uh, be prepared to be flexible. That's what, what I'd say, really. Keep your eyes open for the opportunity throughout, like you said. Go yep. to a new field. Go to yes. a field where new cool stuff is happening. Yeah, yeah. Just keep your eyes open. Yes, Don't. that's past a studentist, but I think most of us, and I include myself in this, didn't realize this sort of thing was too late. Mm. Yeah, I think this applies way beyond science. Yeah. Um, mm. What do you make of this finiteness of our life? Do you think about death? Do you think about mortality? Do you think about your mortality? And are you afraid of death? Well, I mean, I'm not afraid because I, I think I'm lucky. I feel lucky to have lasted as long as I have um, and, uh, and to have been fairly lucky in, um, in my life in many respects compared to, to most people. So I feel very fortunate. Um, uh, it, this reminds me of this current uh, um, emphasis on uh, living much longer than these so-called Altos laboratories, mm -hmm. um, which have been set up by uh, billionaires. Um, uh, there's one in San Francisco, one in uh, La Jolla, I think, and one in Cambridge. And uh, they're, they're funded by um, these guys who, when young, wanted to be rich, and now they're rich, they want to be young again. And they won't <laughs> find that quite so easy. And yeah. do we want this? I don't know. If, if, if there was um, some elite that was able to live much longer than others, that would be a really fundamental kind of inequality. And um, I think um, if it happened to everyone, then that might be an improvement. It's not so obvious. Um, but uh, uh, I think um, uh, for my, my part, I think to have uh, lived as, as long as most people um, and had a fortunate life is all I can expect and a lot to be grateful for. Those are all platitudes. Well, I am in incredibly honored that you sit down with me today. I thank you so much for a life of exploring some of the deepest mysteries of our universe and um, of our humanity and thinking about our future with existential risks that are before us. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's a huge honor, Martin, that you sit with me, yes, and right. I really enjoyed it. And Well, uh, thank you, Lex. I thought we couldn't go on for as long as this, but we could have gone on much longer, I think. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Martin Reese. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, let me leave you with some words from Martin Reese himself. I'd like to widen people's awareness of the tremendous time span lying ahead for our planet and for life itself. Most educated people are aware that were the outcome of nearly 4 billion years of Darwinian selection. But many tend to think that humans are somehow the culmination. 
Our sun, however, is less than halfway through its lifespan. It will not be humans who watch the sun's demise six billion years from now. Any creatures that then exist will be as different from us as we are from bacteria or amoeba. Thank you for listening, and hope to see you next time.